Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good evening to all of you. Skip, I want to thank him so much for the opportunity to be a steward of his pulpit tonight. Uh, I've been a member of this congregation for 16 years and uh, have been so blessed over the years by being fed from this pulpit. So anytime I have the chance to uh, share from it, it's a great honor. It's also a great honor simply to speak to you all because I get to speak to so many family members at one time. Very, very excited about that. Very pleased that each of you have come tonight. According to Bible teacher James Hamilton, there are two kinds of Bible readers. There are those who skim the surface and those who dig deep. He describes them by comparing them to two common insects. He writes, one is remarkable for its imposing plumage, which shows in the sunbeams like the dust of gems. As you watch its jaunty gyrations over the fields and its Minuet dance from flower to flower, you cannot help admiring its graceful activity, for it is plainly getting over a great deal of ground. But in the same field, there's another worker whose brown vest and business-like straightforward flight may not have arrested your eye. His fluttering neighbor darts down here and there and sips elegantly wherever he can find a ready drop of nectar. But this, this dingy plotter makes a point of alighting everywhere. And wherever he alights, he either finds honey or he makes it. And if the nectar even be peculiar, he explores all about it till he discovers it. His rival of the painted velvet wing has no patience for such dull and long-winded details. The one died last October, whereas the other is warm in his hive amidst the fragrant stores that he has gathered. So which type of Bible reader are you? Are you a butterfly or are you a bee? Let's pray. Father, with great delight, we once again have the privilege of gathering in your name with your word and to focus upon your word, and a desire to study your word, being at the center of our gathering, Lord. God, we know that without a doubt, it's from your word, your word of truth, that everything that we think, everything that we do, everything that we say, every reaction to life that we have is to come from your word, Lord. And so, Father, we gather Not as a perfect people, but many of us, Lord, we're battered right now. Many of us, Lord, are hurting. Many of us are grieving. Lord, there are even some here, without a doubt, who feel lost. And so, Lord, as we take time to consider how it is that we're to approach your word, and make correct observations about your word, we pray that we would find what the greats of old have discovered themselves, that, Lord, thy word is truth, that your word, Lord, is refreshing, it's comforting, that your word gives us strength. And so, Lord, please be with us, for without you, What we hope to accomplish tonight cannot be accomplished. Help us all as men and women leave here tonight more inspired to read your word, to study, to observe your word, more able to do that than when we walked in, Lord. For your word, God, is the bread of life. And it's you and you according to your truth that we gather, that we seek, and that we honor. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This is Spiritual Cooking 101, Week 4. As we begin, it's important for me to explain where we are in the cooking process. Because after tonight, we will be halfway through this eight-week series that systematically progresses through the steps of preparing spiritual meals from the Scriptures. We know that in week one, Pastor Skip opened up the series where he whet our appetite as he put us into his shoes as a student of the Bible. And then in week two, Pastor Dave Rao spoke of cooking with the right tools. And then last week, Pastor Nick spoke of having the right approach, the right approach to and the right appreciation of this kind of cooking. And tonight, we're looking at the subject of observation. Message title, Watching What You Eat. We're going to look at the what, the who, the why, the when, the where, and the how of proper biblical observation. Because I know your desire is exactly like my desire, and that's to read and observe the Scriptures as a bee and not as a butterfly. So let's first off consider, what is observation? Well, at the beginning of this phase of Bible study, known as observation, it's the level at which most people's Bible study takes place. Observation is the first level of personal discovery of the Scriptures. It refers to becoming acquainted with the Bible, knowing what it says, knowing where it says it and beginning to understand what it means. I consider this beginning phase of observation the romantic level of Bible study. It's the level at which we fall in love with the truth. There's sentimentality to it. There's excitement to it. There's even a thrilling mystery that gives you a little bit of uneasiness, but yet enough desire to go back and find out exactly what the Scripture says. During this time, we might have thoughts or even verbal expressions to God that go something like this. Wow, Lord, thank you for that. Lord, you've got to be kidding. You're so good. And even thoughts like, Lord, I don't know exactly what you mean by that, but wow, that's intense. At this phase, it evokes an emotional, an intellectual and a willing response on our parts, we gain an overall appreciation for the message of the Scriptures. Because our series is using the analogy of spiritual cooking, let me liken this phase of observation at these beginning stages to an experience that I'm sure has been common to all of us. It's when you're hungry. Physically, you want to eat. You feel emaciated. And so you get home... And you head straight to the refrigerator and you open it up and you observe everything in that refrigerator to see what's available to you to eat. Or you might go to the pantry and you open up the pantry and you take time to observe everything in that pantry in trying to find something to satisfy your hunger. That's where observation begins. But as we look more fully at observation we see that it not only is becoming acquainted and emotionally responding and beginning to find out exactly what the Scripture says, but in its fullness, it involves becoming familiar with the Bible as a whole. It involves an overview of all of the Scripture. You might say it's looking at the entire Bible from a panoramic viewpoint. There's a couple of technical terms that are also used to describe this phase of observation, such as synthesis, to see how everything harmonizes together, or also surveying the scriptures, looking at them as a whole. In fact, as a church, we just finished one of the most epic observations of the Bible as a whole over the last almost two years as Pastor Skip gave us the series, The Bible from 30,000 Feet. And so my job is a little bit easier tonight because all I have to do in, in some way is 
point back to what Pastor Skip did during that study, that series, where he gave us an overview of the Bible as a whole. Now again, I love the analogies that the scripture gives us of life. I also love analogies that God gives us that may not be in the scripture because of perhaps the time period in which the scripture was written, but things that we can observe from life and apply to, at least conceptually, a study of the scripture. And so we're looking at cooking as a spiritual analogy, an analogy of studying the Bible, making spiritual meals. But let me give you a few others to consider. The reason I want to do this, folks, is I really, really want you to appreciate how important this phase of observation is. And I want you to relate to it better than when you arrive this evening by the time we're done tonight. Here's another analogy for you, car shopping. Almost all of us have done that at some point. You arrive on the lot, you have an idea of what you're looking for, and as you go from car to car, there it is. You see it. You notice it. It looks the right way. It looks like it might be the right one. You approach closer. You're liking how the lines look. You like the color of it. As you get even more close, you start to look at the body. You start to look at the tires, see how much more wear they have on them. You look at whether or not it appears to have been in an accident. And as you go around that vehicle, it moves you. You become emotionally attached to that car. You want to take the next steps to making that car your own. Here's another analogy. House hunting. Shopping for a house. From the moment you pull into the neighborhood, that curb appeal is high. You stroll right up to the front of that house and you notice, oh, it's made of the right materials. It has the right number of levels. It has the right amount of garages. You look at the yard and it's attractive to you. It's inviting you in. You get out of the vehicle, you walk around, you go into the house. Mm, it even smells good. It looks clean you become emotionally attached to that house. You have an overall appreciation for the car, for the house. And here's another analogy for you. How about watching a good movie? You see, in this phase of Bible study known as observation, it's like watching a good movie, and it's at the point at which you become familiar with the characters. You become aware of what the plot lines are. And you find yourself drawn in to the story. You're now emotionally connected to the characters. You want to know what's going to happen for the rest of the story. Question. What separates a good Bible student from a poor Bible student? The answer, it's what they see. It's what they see. You know, it's not only true in Bible study, it's true in a number of forms of life. For example, think of an astronomer that excels at his work. Oftentimes, they have the same telescopes, the same viewing points that other astronomers have, but there's something that they see that others missed. What about a good photographer? They capture that moment when the light is just perfect. When the composition is right and they take that shot. What about an artist, a painter? It's what they see in their mind and how they project that on the canvas and do it just perfectly that sets them above the rest. For those of you who are athletes, think of a good point guard in basketball. I think of Magic Johnson. What was he known for? He's known for incredibly observing the court. His court vision was splendid. What about a good quarterback in football? Boy, their field of vision, what they can see, even as they go up to the line and they, they look at the defense, they're observing things and seeing things that perhaps others who aren't as great miss. Observation is so important. Think of a medical specialist. You might have team after team looking at the same images 
of a patient. Yet, it's that one specialist in that faraway state that once they lay their eyes on your images, they know exactly what's wrong and exactly how to take care of you. Whereas everybody else missed it. Think of a good talent scout. They see something in someone that the rest have missed. You know, I I often tell my wife, had God not gotten my attention, had God not given me a calling, perhaps one of the ways in which I would have liked to have spent my life would have been as a secret service agent. They know how to observe. In fact, just a few years ago when I had an opportunity to see the president, I was standing at the part of the line where he was going to walk through in just a few minutes and with systematic perfection, those agents came through the line ahead of him and they were looking at every possible detail that didn't seem right in order to take care of it before anything happened. In fact, I was holding a pen in my hand and I was excited because I wanted to see if the president would be able to sign something for me. And as I'm looking over at the president, I didn't even see the guy coming, but he grabbed my pen and flung it over his shoulder. Didn't care where it went. Thank God I'm not wealthy enough to have a Mont Blanc. It was just a disposable Bic, but it was gone. They're observing, and it's their observation that makes them valuable to the president. Think of a soldier on the battlefield. could literally mean the difference between life and death, what they observe. How many of you have had the same question I've had over the years? We're sitting in this church hearing Pastor Skip teach. He explains a passage and you ask yourself, how does Skip see so much from that passage? The answer, he's a great observer, which enables him to then be a great teacher. So tonight we're dealing with observation. Now, in the next two weeks, Pastor Nelson Walker, who's going to be dealing with the subject of interpretation, and Pastor Brian Nixon, who's going to be dealing with languages in the Bible and figurative language and figures of speech, things of that nature, respectively, they're going to take us to a deeper level of seriousness in Bible study. In fact, if I can use the same analogies I've already given you, let me explain just to give you a little taste of what's ahead as to what they're going to cover and how it compares to what I'm covering tonight. Talked about car shopping, right? You get emotionally attached to the car. You want it. You can't wait to see yourself in it. But if you're wise, you'll take it a step further before you make the commitment. You'll take it to an auto mechanic. He'll perform a diagnostic on it. Now, those aren't fun. First of all, you've got to wait. It takes time. Also, you kind of hold your breath while it's going on, right? Same is true with house hunting. You want that house. You pray and hope to God that nothing is going to be wrong with that house when the inspections are being done. Or, again, watching a movie. Let's say you're watching this movie and maybe you've moved past that point of the the emotional excitement and and interest that you have with the characters. You always get to that point in the movie where the uh, plot thickens The protagonist's plight seems to be on the decline. The antagonist is gaining the upper hand. That might not be as fun or as emotionally exciting, but it's necessary. That's what you're going to cover over the next two weeks. And just as a side note, when you're studying the scripture, there's always an amazing and exciting ending. So it'll always end up good for you. So... Even if you don't have the tools that Pastor Dave spoke of just a few weeks ago, tonight we're going to show you how to begin to observe more safely and more efficiently. So that's what observation is. But now let me ask a question that perhaps for most of us here kind of seems to go without having to be asked. And that is, who can observe? Can everybody do this? Can just anybody be an observer of the scripture? The answer is no. Only God's children have any chance of making true observation of Scripture. Now, there's two senses in which the children of God are referred to. There's those 
who consider the children of God according to creation, every living human being. And there's some truth to that. We're all created by God. But the sense in which this is true is that we're his child through redemption in Jesus Christ. We've put our faith in God through Jesus Christ. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's our Lord and Savior. And the scripture says that the Holy Spirit then takes up residency within us. Only those kind of children that belong to God, again, have any chance at making a true observation of the scripture. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 14, as we consider this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. Paul writes, as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we, God's children, have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual But the natural man, those who do not belong to Christ, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. You have to belong to God. You have to have God's Spirit to teach you these things. Not only do you have to be his child redemptively, But you also have to come with a very dependent heart upon the Holy Spirit. We come prayerfully dependent upon God to reveal his truth to us. Psalm 119 is what Pastor Skip shared with us a few weeks back. And in verse 18, we see a prayer that almost every one of us should be praying before we open up the scripture. And that's the words of the psalmist where he says, Open my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your law. And how about Jesus' own words in John chapter 16, verse 13, where Jesus said, However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So we must be God's child redemptively. We must come to the word of God prayerfully. But let me give you four other things that a true observer must bring with them to the observation of the scripture. They first must bring a hunger, a hunger. You don't have to turn your Bibles to these texts that I'm going to read now because you'll spend all your time flipping pages before you actually get there and I'll have already read the verse. So if you're taking notes, you can simply write the references down. But regarding having a hunger, listen to this out of Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Your words were found... And I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. You have to be hungry. You also want to consider Psalm 34, verse 8, which tells us, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So you need to hunger for the truth. You also need to bring hard work with you. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker 
who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You also need to bring with you hours, hours. Yes, friends, it's going to take time if we're going to do it right. How many times when you think back to the experience I shared with you earlier, when you're hungry and you open up the refrigerator or you open up the pantry, you're so hungry, you do that and you just grab almost the first thing that your eyes lay hold of. You grab that, you devour it. Only to discover afterward that it might have already gone bad. Or, with regret, you think back and consider how unhealthy it was. Or, you look a little bit further into the fridge, into the pantry, and you find that, well, if you'd have just been a little bit more patient, there was something so much better that you could have eaten. Or even so much more healthier that you could have eaten. We have to be patient. We have to bring the willingness to spend hours in the word in order to be a good observer. Consider these words of Proverbs 21, verse 3. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. And also Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the lazy man desires. Oh, it's not that he doesn't want. He just doesn't want to put the work in. He doesn't want to put the time in. The soul of the lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. And lastly, you want to bring humility. We want to approach the scriptures with a teachable spirit. In fact, again, out of Proverbs 25 verse 9, we read that the humble, he, God, guides in justice. And the humble, he teaches his way. We must be humble, willing to learn, ready to be corrected, ready to even have predispositions altered when we come to the scriptures. So, that's who can observe. Not only do we have to be saved and prayerful, but we have to bring those four things to the scripture as we seek to observe. Now let's ask the question, why is this phase even necessary? Why is observation necessary? Well, it's necessary for the same reason that physically speaking, it's important for us to watch what we eat if we want to be healthy, if we want to be fit, if we want to avoid illnesses. Observation is necessary for spiritual health and safety. See, many believers are malnourished or even sick spiritually. Many are even injured spiritually because of improperly prepared spiritual food. And sadly, poor students end up making poor teachers in the pulpit, which in turn breed more poor students. So it's important that we do it right and that we patiently be a good steward of this phase of observation. When must it take place? Is it okay to do this phase maybe at the beginning or in the middle or perhaps even at the end? No, it's essential that it takes place at the beginning. You must start your Bible study here at Observation. Before you can accurately and safely interpret a text, you must first get the overall picture of the book or of the Bible as a whole. That's what observation is. It gives you an overall perspective that'll build fences in your study that'll protect you from things that aren't true coming into your interpretation of the passage. This always needs to happen before analyzing in detail the parts of the Bible. Another word to describe the analysis of the minutia of the scriptures is what you're going to study next week. That's the word interpretation. 
So observation must always occur before analysis or before interpretation. And there's two reasons for this. First of which, we need to see each part of the Bible with its intended emphasis. And secondly, we need to see each part of the Bible's relationship to the other parts. Let me give you now a very important key to all of Bible study. And that's that the Bible should always be interpreted as a whole. You can never divorce one part of the scripture from another part. It always has to be considered in light of itself. I'm going to share with you now a couple of technical terms. If you're taking notes, again, you want to write these down. These are important to know. It helps you to understand how it is that we get fed so well week after week by Pastor Skip. The first term is exegesis. Exegesis. Let me spell it for you. E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. Why is this important? Let me read to you the definition of exegesis. It's the critical explanation or interpretation of a text or a portion of a text. In other words, exegesis allows us to see what's really there. And one of the reasons that Pastor Skip is such an incredible Bible teacher is because he applies exegesis to all of the Scripture. Now let me give you the evil twin of exegesis. It's a term called eisegesis. Eisegesis. Let me spell that one for you. E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. This is something that no church should have any business with. Let me read to you its definition. It's an interpretation that expresses the interpreters, not the Bibles, the interpreters' own ideas or bias or the like rather than the true meaning of the text. That's eisegesis. You see, those who apply eisegesis to their quote-unquote study of the Bible see something that's not really there. And consequently, it's the equivalent of spiritual junk food. And sadly, pulpits are filled with such so-called Bible study. You know, it has about as much nutritional content as bazooka gum or as a soda pop. It might taste really good as it's going in, but doesn't do any good for you spiritually. Observation must take place at the beginning, and it requires our patience because it requires us taking the time to read and observe in a way that asks the right questions and seeks for the right answers that will lay the basis from which we will eventually be able to accurately interpret the Scripture. Now, in just a moment, there's going to be an image that pops up on the large screens. And what this is is an exercise to show us the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. As this image pops up on the screen, I want you to count the number of squares that you see, and the first person to have the answer right, just yell it out. The correct answer is 30. You see, you said 16. That's the impatient Bible student. I just want to get to what's there. But those who seek to exegete, to see what's really there, are going to discover that not only are there 16 squares that are one-sided, but there's nine that are two-sided. And there's four that are three-sided. And there's one that is four-sided. Take the time to see what's really there. That's what observation is. Now, again, in just another moment, 
you're going to see another image on the screen. I want you to just look at the image and I want you to count the number of gray dots that you see in this image. First one to get it, just yell it out. Any takers? Do you understand what I'm talking about when I ask you to look at the gray dots? When you see that image, in between the squares, our mind can play a trick on us. Because naturally, our brain, our eyes, aren't able to make the contrast that's necessary to discern the image crystal clearly. And so sometimes we look at the image, and it seems like there's gray dots that appear at the four corners of the black squares. If the image was smaller, I guarantee you it would look even more vivid. Well, the answer is there are no gray dots. In our natural ability, we can be easily fooled. That is eisegesis. Seeing something that's not really there when we don't have the faculty to discern clearly. That's again to underscore the significance of relying upon the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Many who desire to go deep into the word impatiently skip this step of observation, wanting to get to their desired destination of interpretation without paying the price to get there. You see, this is the person that goes on the car lot and they just buy the car. They didn't get it checked out and they risk buying a lemon. They buy the house and they say, oh, I'll waive all the inspections. I just want to get in it as soon as possible. The inspections are just going to take time and money. Only to find out that, boy, if there's mold, if there's radon, there's a cracked foundation. Boy, it costs more to make those repairs than the whole house even costs. There could be a great price to pay if we don't take the time to be faithful to this step. To bypass observation is to risk great spiritual injury or calamity. But it also makes us forfeit the richer experiences of Bible study. Because if you abandon observation, you risk forfeiting two great things, one of which is personal discovery, and the other is timely discovery. Personal discovery is for you and God spending time together in his word, allow yourself to be shown by God an incredible truth. That moment is so real that that truth becomes yours. It's a lot like the difference between reading about a destination somewhere around the world and actually traveling there. Traveling there and walking the streets, smelling the smells, feeling the texture of the city, interacting with the people, visiting the sites. You've been there. You know it. It's become yours. And then there's timely discovery. This is when we as pastors get this daily, multiple times even throughout one day. And that's a child of God trying to get a hold of us saying, hey, I need to talk. You know, I'm convinced, I've learned this over the past decade of pastoral ministry, that there are times where God allows none of us to be available because he wants you to go to him. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to appreciate these words out of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to him to whom we must give an account. You want to find out what's going on in your life? You want to find out where you need to go in life, what you need to do, what you need not to do? It's all in the scriptures. And the word of God can impress that upon you personally. So, 
observation must take place at the beginning and we must be willing to be patient and faithful to it. Now, where exactly does this observation take place? Where's the lookout point? Very simply stated, observation takes place before God and in your Bible. Before God and in your Bible. Again, in a prayerful dependence upon God, with just you, your Bible, and perhaps something to write on and something to write with. Or for some of you, you think better through a keyboard. So you might have your computer there. You and God and something to record your observations on or with. That's what you need. Consider these words from the great missionary Amy Carmichael. She said, never let good books take the place of the Bible. Drink from the well, not from the streams that flow from the well. Go directly to the source itself. And just a side note here. Dave mentioned a few weeks ago the differences between uh, translations of the Bibles and, and, and two particular groupings of translations. During this time, you want to use what he referred to as a formal equivalency translation. That would be, in layman's terms, a word-for-word translation of the Scripture. Examples of that are the New King James, the Old King James, the New American Standard. You want to use this during the observation process of uh, Bible study. You can use a dynamic equivalency, which is, in layman's terms, a thought-for-thought translation, where they they said, okay, this is what the word order is in the original language, but we're just going to change the word order around or maybe even add a few more words, not to change the meaning, but to put it perhaps in a more contemporary way for us to understand today. That would be like the NIV version or the New Living Translation of the Bible. So you want to use a formal equivalency. And so now, let's actually get to how to observe. How to watch what you eat in four steps. Step one, observe the content of the entire book. Here you want to find out what's the book's structure, what what is it made of, what's its content. And this is how you do it. First, you want to scan the book, preferably in one sitting. At this point of scanning the book, you don't have to read every word slowly. In fact, you can just do a flyover. Maybe let your eyes fall upon the first sentence of each segment or paragraph. You just want to get a flyover view of the scripture in one sitting. In doing so, you orient yourself with the book's big picture, the big idea. Now, this is where most people abandon true Bible study because they think, oh, that's just too involved. But you don't want to do that. You want to stick with it. Secondly, you want to record your observations. You want to write them down or put them on your word processing program. In making observations at this point, simply have fun and observe the obvious. Let me give you an example. This past winter... For Christmas, I bought my daughter her first bicycle. It was in a box. I didn't want to pay somebody else to put something together that I knew I could put together. And so I bought it in the box, took it out of the box, and there were a few bags of these ambiguous pieces that I didn't know exactly where they went just by looking at them. But what I did is I got the frame, I got the two wheels, and I got the handlebars, and I laid them out where I know without a doubt they go. That was my example of observing the obvious. So you're writing down your first impressions. Again, this point can't go understated. Always record your observations from beginning all the way through. This helps to both chronicle your thoughts and it shows you how you went through the process of discovery, but it also lays a foundation for future study. Fourthly, let the Bible say what it says. At this stage, just let it speak for itself. Don't spiritualize a text and do everything that you can to not approach the Bible with your predispositions or with your mind already made up about this passage or about this area of doctrine. And then lastly, at this phase... 
you want to begin recording systematically the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, and the how. Who wrote it? Who is this written to? Who's in the story? Who did this involve? What was the book about? What events occurred? Where was it written? Where were the people to whom it was written? When was it written? Why was it written? Was it a corrective epistle? Was it a pastoral epistle? Was it a historical book? How was it written? Did they use poetry? Did it follow uh, a historical outline? You want to ask these questions and write down your observations. Step two, observe the context of the passage. Observe the context. The first, content. The second step, context. What is context? Context simply means that which goes with the text. Or to look at it another way, it's that which goes before the text and that which follows after the text. Again, when it comes to home buying, what are most people going to tell you the first rule of real estate is? Location, location, location. It's critical to the value of that home. The same is true with context. Location, location, location. And it's going to be critical to the true value of that truth that you're trying to mine. So, here you're asking, what is your passage's relationship to the book as a whole? And what is this book's relationship to the Bible as a whole? Let me give you some things to consider as far as what kinds of context to look for. First, there's the immediate context. This is usually the sentence that it's in. And then in concentric circles, you move outwardly. Then there's the paragraph or the chapter. Then there's the Bible book. Then there's parallel passages. For example, the crucifixion of Christ as all four Gospels record them. And then finally, there's the context of the entire Bible. In this phase, you read, read, and reread the book. Again, this is where most people abandon true Bible study because it just involves too much work. John Mitchell of Multnomah Bible School was the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, Washington. While he was pastoring there, he heard the great Dr. G. Campbell Morgan preach. He noticed that this man knew his text. The young Mitchell was impressed. In fact, he asked Morgan how it was that he understood the scripture so well. Morgan told him, if I told you, you wouldn't do it. Just try me, Mitchell said. Morgan told him, before I study a book, granted, study. Before I even study a book, I read it 50 times. 50 times. You want to be a great Bible student? You got to pay the price. In this phase of observation, again, you want to be recording your observations. You can do it by making an outline, or you can use a pre-made chart that many good resources have, or you can create your own chart. Now is where you perhaps want to begin introducing other spiritual cooking utensils in your meal preparation. And so on the screen here is an example of a chart that you can make. Uh, it's not on the big screens. It's behind me on these smaller screens, so I apologize if you can't see it. There we go. So we have the title of the New Testament book, for example. And as you're making your observations because you're reading and rereading the text, you record perhaps two divisions in the book. Under each division, you record sections. You take it a step further. Under each section, you're going to find a segment. And perhaps making up each of those segments are the various paragraphs in that segment. That's an example of making your own chart. Howard Hendricks wrote a great book that would help any of you greatly who are interested in wanting to learn more about studying the Bible. 
It's a book titled Living by the Book. And in this book, he encourages us in this process of observation, ways in which we can read the scripture to get as much out of it as possible. He says we need to do a reading of the scripture in the following ways. In addition to repeatedly reading the book, and in addition to prayerfully reading the book, we need to thoughtfully read the book. We need to engage our mind. We, again, need to do it patiently. Some people have recommended even taking a whole month just to study one book and getting as much out of it as possible. You, again, want to read it selectively. This is, again, going in a further detail to record the who, the what, where, when, and why, and the how of the book. You also want to do it imaginatively. You see, here, you might want to grab a hold of some alternative versions of the Bible, or even the dynamic equivalencies or paraphrases of the Bible. See how those texts read. You might also give yourself the task of putting the truth into your own words. You might get an audio dramatization of the Bible and listen to it. You could also change your setting. Maybe go outside and read or go to a different place and just kind of liven it up, change it up a bit. You also want to read meditatively. This could be described as chewing on the cud of the thoughts of the scripture. Slow down. Consider the implications. Consider the weightiness of what you're reading. You also want to read purposefully. This is critical. In reading purposefully, you look for things that are emphasized. You look for things that are repeated or related things that are alike within a book, or even things that are total contrasts. You want to look for comparisons, figures of speech, oddities, things that seem strange. Record all these things. Write them down. You also want to look at the Scripture and read it acquisitively. Think of acquiring it. You need to have the attitude that I want to make the truth of God's Word my own. And then lastly, you want to read it telescopically. You want to read it as a part of the whole of the Bible. Remember something that I'm sure you've heard many times over the years, that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, whereas the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. You know, you never want to minimize or overemphasize either the Old Testament or the New Testament but you want to let each of them be interpreted in light of the other. Now, to do that, let me recommend another great resource. It's called The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. This book, get this, has an average of eight cross-references for every verse of the Bible in it. Eight cross-references for every verse of the Bible. So it'll allow you to go to a verse and to look at so many other places in which there's a related truth or event or person so that you can understand the scripture in light of itself. Now let's move to step three. This is where we observe the qualities of the book. What is the feel of this book? What's the book's atmosphere? Here you want to find out things like, what's the tone? Uh, does it have a taste? Does it have a flavor? Does it have a smell to it? Is it judgmental? Is it uplifting? Is it grace-filled? Is it prophetic? What's the atmosphere? What are the qualities of the book? In step four, you want to observe application for your life. Even though true application or the safest application is going to take place after interpretation you can still get spiritual nutrients from this phase of Bible study by looking at the overall thrust of a book, the intended message, or things that you caught even in this observation phase. These are things that will feed you spiritually. Before I close, I want to give you some additional cooking utensils to use for this phase known as observation. 
And so I'm going to go in order explaining to you why each of these books are valuable. They're going to appear to you in picture form on the large screens. First of all, you want to use a good study Bible. The Nelson study Bible is one that I recommend. It has more notes than any other study Bible in existence. And they do a great job to just stick to a good interpretation of the Bible without being uh, favorable to any one denomination or any other denomination. So a good study Bible is a great place to start. You also want to always use a good concordance, such as Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. That will allow you to know uh, just even one word in, the, in, in a passage and by that one word be able to find where that verse is located. You can also make use of great survey books, overview books of the Bible. Two that I recommend are Jensen's Survey of the Old Testament and Jensen's Survey of the New Testament. Another great survey book is a book called Talk Through the Bible by Wilkinson. Wonderful resource. Handbooks. This is like an overall one-volume resource to help you with your Bible study. You can use Haley's Bible Handbook, which is where Pastor Chuck Smith started out in learning what it was to exposit or exegete the Scripture. Another great one is the New Unger's Bible Handbook. Also, good Bible map and chart books are wonderful resources to help you at this phase of observation. For example, Nelson's Complete Book of Bible Maps and Charts, great resource. It has, for every book of the Bible, a chart like the one I showed you in black and white with those multicolored segments. For every book of the Bible, it has them pre-made already. So maybe not all of you are as adventurous as some of us are to do it on your own, but you can find it there already done for you. And then there's a whole series of books regarding the chronological and background charts of not only the New Testament, as you see here, but even the Old Testament. And then lastly, there's the Bible Knowledge Commentary. You can get that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's a good one-volume set per Old and New Testament to help you out. And then Dave Rao mentioned a few weeks ago this package here that the bookstore has of a compact Bible handbook, Bible dictionary, Bible commentary, and a concordance. And they have that for 20 bucks over at the bookstore. I know they don't make any money off of that one. They want to get the resources into your hands. So, friends, that's observation. Requires patience, hard work, but it's worth it. And if you have any desire to interpret the Bible on your own, you have to be faithful to this phase. You see, the reason that we benefit from and so appreciate our pastor, Skip Heitzig, is because he observes the scripture not like a butterfly, but like a bee. And we're all grateful for that. Phillips Brooks said, The Bible is like a telescope. If a man looks through his telescope, he sees worlds beyond. But if he just looks at his telescope, he doesn't see anything but the telescope. The Bible is a thing to be looked through to see that which is beyond. But most people only look at it, and in doing so, they simply see a dead letter. May we be men and women of the Bible that observe and look through the Scriptures to find what God has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us the grace to ourselves be faithful observers of your truth, Lord. And God, as we seek to take the next steps beyond to interpret your, your word, may we be faithful and patient in this phase of observation so that, Lord, we stay safe and we stay healthy in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. 
Thank you, and God bless.